If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to the book of Galatians to chapter 3. We start tonight in verse 11 with the word but. The word but means what? We're starting a new topic? No, we're continuing a topic. The topic of which is salvation is by faith, not by works. Which is very fundamental to the faith. If you think you can earn your salvation, you need to study a little harder because it's simply not possible. So verse 11 says, but that no one is justified. What does justified mean? Saved, washed clean, found righteous in the sight of God. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Evident means obvious. What is that old expression, intuitively obvious to the most casual observer? Ayatin Co. That's what this is. It says, for quote, the just shall live by faith. Meaning we don't get justified through works, we get justified by faith. That's a New Testament concept, right? Oh, it's in the Old Testament. Wait a minute, this was a quote. This was a quote from Habakkuk. Let's go back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Or have a cookie, that's right. Habakkuk chapter 2. Which is a little book. But it's there after Nahum. Which city in Israel is named after Nahum? The village of Nahum. That's Capernaum. Capernaum. Where did Messiah center his ministry? In Capernaum. Interesting. Capernaum is where the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali come together. If that makes you think of Isaiah. But back in chapter 2, verse 4. says, Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. Oh, wait a minute. God's not looking for the proud. What's he looking for? The humble. It says, but the just shall live by his faith. That tells us more than one thing. It tells us also that the proud is not justified in the eyes of God. If you are justified in the eyes of God, is that not something to be proud of? Look what I did. No, it's look what he did for me. Let's look also at Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. This is the Apostle Paul, again, quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed. I missed a verse. Verse 17, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. And then comes the word for in verse 18. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So if you're trying to be saved by your works, what does this verse tell you? You're going to fall short. You're going to fall into the wrath of God. Therefore, you do not want to be judged on whether you were good enough to earn salvation. You want to be judged on the faith that you have. And how do you demonstrate that faith? 
by your walk. See, that's where people get confused. I heard theologians just this very week say, salvation's by faith, and then you don't have to keep commandments. You can walk in sin, and it's okay with God. Where do they get that from the scripture? Answer is, it's not there. It is true that works do not earn salvation, but what does salvation do? Salvation causes you to want to be obedient to God. What if you don't want to be obedient to God? Ah, the Apostle Paul says, maybe I should worry about you. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 38 and 39. I want you to see that this phrase from Habakkuk chapter 2 appears in many places in the New Testament scriptures. It's fundamental to the faith. That's kind of a pun, isn't it? Didn't mean it to be. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Wait a minute, what does that mean? It means you can walk away from your faith. And if you do that, God says, my soul has no pleasure in you. Is that a veiled threat? There's no veil. So what does that do to the doctrine of once saved, always saved? I agree with the phrase, once saved, always saved, but I don't think that everybody who thinks they're saved is saved. Because you can walk away. It makes me think of the parable of the sower, where there were four kinds of hearts, huh? And in all four kinds of hearts, did the seed produce fruit bountifully? No, just in one of the four. But there were others where the gospel message took root and started to grow. But then it got snuffed out by what? Sometimes the cares of the world. What's another way to put that? They turned back. They turned back. That's right. They went back to their sinful ways. Somewhere they heard that once you walk down the aisle, now you can go sin all you want. It's okay with God. They returned to the vomit like the dog, yeah. Verse 39 says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition. I just want us to understand why, what Paul means by draws back. They didn't just backslide a little and earn less crowns in heaven, as I heard this week. If they walked away from God back into their sins, it's not just a loss of rewards. It says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition. But of those who believe, and what kind of word is that? That's continuing action. Continue to believe to the saving of the soul. In other words, it sounds like what? The goal. What is the goal of the Torah? Salvation and Messiah Yeshua. You're absolutely right. Because if there's one thing you learn from the Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, is that you are not perfect and neither am I. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. We're up to verse 12. Yet, 
The law is not a faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Oh, Paul, he's planning a conundrum here. Yet the law is not of faith, meaning keeping the commandments of the law is not how you obtain to faith. It's not your way of achieving faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. That is, if you are saved by faith, then you live according to God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. What did John tell us in 1 John chapter 3? 1 John chapter 3. I've said it to y'all are tired of it, but you got to hear it again. When John writes in the middle of the 90s, Paul, Peter, and those guys have been dead for 30 years. And the church is going off the rails. What do we read in Revelation chapter 2? The doctrine of the Nicolaitans has crept in. Messiah has been crucified, buried, and resurrected, so sin is okay. Not so. So John steps in to go, wait a minute, guys. Let's go back to the fundamentals. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Do you see the exclamation mark? John says, have you thought about what a blessing that is, what a privilege, what an honor to be called the child of the living God? Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, what hope? The hope of salvation, that we shall see Messiah, that we shall stand in the presence of Almighty God as the child of God. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Does to purify yourself mean to walk in sin? To root like the sow in the mud and the muck? No, quite the opposite. Means to cleanse oneself. Be holy for I am holy is what the Lord said where? In the food chapter, Leviticus chapter 11, and Peter emphasizes that, and John emphasizes that. Why does God want you to be holy? For he is holy. Do you want to live in his presence? Do you want to live in his sight? Then be holy. When God told the children of Israel in Leviticus 11, be ye holy for I am holy in the food chapter, he had said, I'm going to come down and dwell in the midst of you. Literally in the midst. The tabernacle was in the center. Then three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. What if the camp had been full of pigs? Then God would not have dwelt there. Do you ask God to dwell in uncleanness? Well, when you eat the shrimps, the pigs, the lobsters, etc., and ask God to dwell in your body, what are you doing? You're asking him to dwell in the outhouse. Don't do that. This is where we get 1 John 3, 4. That's the very next verse. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Why does John specifically use the word lawlessness here, do you think? Do you think it's because in Matthew chapter 7, Messiah said, come judgment day, I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. 
So John is saying sin is not okay. He's contrasting two different lifestyles. He brings that to a head in verse 10, doesn't he? In this, the children of God and the children of devil are manifest. What about the other groups? There isn't any. There's the two groups. You're either the child of God or the child of the devil. And he said, here's how you can tell which you are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Righteousness is the opposite of Lawlessness. So what characterized the children of the devil? They walk in lawlessness. So which do you want to be? Remember what Moses said back in Deuteronomy 30? I said before you today, life and death, you choose. Is that what he said, you choose? He said, choose life. You have a choice, but one choice is really stupid. Okay? Don't pick it. Go back to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. My goodness, this reads just like what Galatians just said. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So does that mean we're saved by keeping statutes? No, it means that if you are full of faith in God, you will want to obey God. That's exactly what James says. It's exactly what James says. I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You show me your faith without your works. Let's see who can, who can come up and... And that's what most people want to say now. I make that profession of faith. I don't have to do anything else. I would agree with the phrase, I don't have to do anything else. I would replace it with, but I want to. But I want to. That's sort of like making a confession I'm a millionaire and don't have a dime. I would make jokes about current politics, but I don't find it funny. So let's go on to Romans chapter 6 and remind ourselves that who you serve is very important. Who do you obey? You might think, well, I don't obey anybody. Yeah, that's not true. You obey God or you obey someone else. Even if it's yourself. How many times does the Bible say, and each man did what was right in his own eyes, and it does it in a good way? Never. Never. Each man did what was right in his own eyes always comes before tragedy. Romans chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Oh my goodness, does that say the law doesn't apply to me? No, it says the law is not my means of salvation. 
My salvation comes by faith through the grace of God. What shall we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? What's the answer? May genoito, certainly not. God forbid, no way Jose, put it however you want, just don't do it. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You're that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. That was man's failure in the garden. God said, don't eat it. Satan said, eat it. Who did they listen to? Satan. They listened to Satan instead of God. Does it matter if they listen to Satan or if they listen to, oh, say, the Pope or a Pharisee or the high priest? It doesn't matter, does it? It's God or it's wrong. There's no other way to describe it. It's God or it's wrong. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. First thing I want to say is too many people have scratched out some of those words and say Messiah has redeemed us from the law. But is that what it says? No, he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? The wages of sin is death. He died for us. He paid that price. He redeemed us from the curse that everyone who doesn't keep the commandments perfectly, the wages of sin is death. Yes, he died for us. He became a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Do you know if those are in quotes? Where does it say that in the scriptures? In Deuteronomy? Again? In Deuteronomy where? What's that? 21-23. Let's go back and look. <laughs> Deuteronomy 21-23, your footnote says... What do you know? There it is. We'll read verses 22 and 23 together. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day. Messiah died on Passover. Why were they hurrying so quickly to get him in the grave? Because he had been hanged on a tree. And they could not leave his body overnight. They had to hurry to get him in the ground. So that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So why was Messiah accursed of God? Because he took our sins upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
First Peter chapter three. Verse 18. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. This is the answer to the question that I get asked so often. Where in the Bible does it say that Messiah went down and preached to those in Sheol? That's right here. Verse 18. For Messiah also suffered once for sins... The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That's talking about in Sheol, those that were waiting for Messiah to come. First hmm. Timothy chapter 2. First hmm. Timothy chapter two. Starting in verse five. For there is one God. Where's that in the Old Testament? That's the Shema. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Uh-oh. What about all those people who say Mary is the co-mediator, the co-redemptrix? They are wrong. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Yeshua the Messiah, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He died for us. Now back to 1 Peter. Back to 1 Peter. Chapter 2. Ah, they're not very far apart. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Referring to our Messiah Yeshua says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Notice how often the scripture says on the tree. That's not a mistranslation. That is correct. And that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Look at that. That we, having died to sins, that's in the baptism, put under the water. When you come back out of the water, you might live for righteousness. So what did happen according to your testimony? You have changed. Your life has changed. The body of sin, put that away. And come out a new soul living in righteousness before God. It says, by whose stripes you were healed. Boy, does that sound like Isaiah 53. For you were like sheep going astray. Again, this Isaiah 53. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The shepherd. John chapter 10 says there's how many shepherds? One shepherd. 
who leads how many flocks? One flock. One flock, one shepherd goes one way. Isn't there a Jewish flock and a Gentile flock? No, when it comes to believers, Ephesians 2 says one new man. Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah. If you've never heard that song by Joel Chernoff, it's a beauty. Go also to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-six. There isn't a twenty-six. That's a twenty-one. Good thing I was gonna have to start writing quickly. Goodness. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, what does it say? Once we get saved, our lives must change. They just have to. Because it becomes our heart's desire to show our love to Messiah and to the God who called us. And they both say, how do, how do you show our love? Keep my commandments. John 14, 15, those are Messiah's words, although he says, mm, actually, they're to my fathers in heaven. But then in 1 John chapter 5, it's very clear in verses 2 and 3. What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not what? Are not burdensome. So if you have a good understanding of the New Testament scriptures, you cannot argue that Messiah came to abolish God's commandments and to replace it with a simple commandment of love one another. Does love one another appear in the Old Testament? Yeah, it's in Leviticus. All right, back to Galatians before I get preachy. Among other commandments. <laughs> Amongst other commandments, yeah. But are they burdensome? Oh, I know people tell me, Wayne, it would just be too burdensome to keep the Sabbath. Now, keeping Sunday, that's a delight. But keeping the Sabbath on Saturday, oh, that would be so hard, so difficult. It'd be terrible. Really? It is against the lifestyle of America. What is it? If you follow God's commandments, are we different? Are we set apart different from the world? Yeah. A lot of people don't like that. I want to be like the world. I don't want to be like the world. Back in Back in biblical times in the Old Covenant, it was like that too. Yes, the rest of the world look at Israel like, hey, you guys are strange. I just watched the movie Ben-Hur yesterday. And the Romans were saying, these Jews and their God, they got some strange ways. <laughs> but back to Galatians 3, verse 14. Verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles and Messiah. What's the blessing of Abraham? Inheritance of the land, but more than that, salvation by faith. They go hand in hand. What is Abraham the heir of, according to the scriptures? The world. Everything. Yeah. 
and he's, we're going to come to that more and more. Don't forget that when you become a believer, saved by faith, you are joint heirs with Messiah. And what's Messiah heir of? Everything. And people want to trade that away for a few years of earthly pleasures. Does that remind you of Esau trading away the birthright for a bowl of lentil soup? Hey, lentil soup is good, don't get me wrong. But it ain't that good. You're right. But verse 14 goes on, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles and Messiah Yeshua, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We talked about these terms a week or two ago, but I want to go over it again. The phrase, the Spirit, appears in the King James Version 111 times. But that's not the only way the Holy Spirit is indicated in Scripture. First, I want to give you some numbers, and then I want to look at some of them. The Holy Spirit, or in the King James Version, Holy Ghost, appears 89 times. So that's the same here as the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. 13 times it's listed as the Spirit of God. Five times, the Spirit of the Lord. Three times, the Spirit of Truth. I'm sorry. Where are you? Five times, the Spirit of the Lord. Three times, the Spirit of Truth. Two times, the Spirit of Messiah, or in King James, the Spirit of Christ. and many other ways for a total of 385 in the New Testament in the King James Version. How many? 385 total. This, to me, brings up the issue of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity says that God is in three distinct persons that coexist and are co-equal and that the Holy Spirit is not the Spirit of God, is not the Spirit of Messiah, it is his own unique person. Why then is he described as the Spirit of God 13 times and the Spirit of the Lord five times, the Spirit of Messiah twice? How can the Holy Spirit be the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Messiah, except that God and Messiah are one? And there's not a trinity, but a triunity. But to examine it, let's look at some of the occurrences of these terms. The phrase Spirit of God appears... a total of 29 times. The numbers before were just New Testament. But the Spirit of God is a total of 29 times. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. That's almost like in the beginning, right? 
Genesis chapter 1, in fact, it's verse 2. We'll start in verse 1, so for context. Verse 1 says, Very sheep bara eight. Ah, not quite. Yeah. But the word for God there is Elohim. Elohim is plural. It can refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or to the pagan gods. The way to know which it is is by context. And the verb here, Bereshit, bara Elohim, bara is singular. If it was referring to the pagan gods or a group of gods, it would be Baru, which is plural. So whenever you see the word Elohim, meaning the pagan gods, the verbs are plural. When it's our God, the verb is singular because there is only one. So Bereshit, bara Elohim, eight Hashemayim, ve'et ha'aretz. And Daniel talked all about the eight in one of his teachings. If you've not heard it, I recommend it. It was very good. So God created the heavens and the earth. But John chapter 1 says Messiah created the heavens and the earth. The answer is yes, because he is God from all eternity. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. It was tohu and bohu. Not boohoo, but tohu and bohu. Without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. He is the spirit of God. So look at Genesis 41. Oh, we're not going to look at all of them, don't worry. I see a little fear on the faces, don't worry. Genesis 41, verse 38. Talking about Joseph. Joseph is a great man in the eyes of Pharaoh. Not because of Joseph, but because of the God that Joseph serves. So in verse 30 it says, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? God in heaven is a spirit. That's why he had to take on a body of flesh and blood, because you can't nail a spirit to a tree. And the next one is going to be Exodus or Ezekiel. I'm going to guess Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31, verse 3. Exodus 31, verse 3. The Lord is speaking to Moses. Look at verse 1. And the, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, So whose words are these? They're the Lord's. Verse 2. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. With what? With the Spirit of God. That's the Holy Spirit. And wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Go to the New Testament now to Matthew chapter 3. Just a few in the Old Testament, a few in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16. Yes ma'am? I used to struggle with... Used to struggle with... 
That's with the Trinity, okay? And as you read through your Bible. You said then you understood why they had to say there's a trinity because it was too confusing. For them to understand that God could be and is Father God, Yeshua, and the Holy Spirit. Understood. Understood. So God manifests himself to us in three ways. So Matthew 3.16 and when he had been baptized, Yeshua came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending up like a dove and alighting upon him. What is the Spirit of God here? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is where people say there has to be a trinity. God speaking from heaven, the Holy Spirit's falling in the form of a dove, and there's Messiah coming up out of the water. God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. What's omnipresent mean? He's everywhere. Who in here is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, there's only one Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit sitting by himself? Answer, no. God is everywhere. You can't limit God by space. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. So what's the need of having three... What's the need then in having a three, three descriptions? descriptions? Yeah. I mean, because God interacts with mankind three different ways. Can you see, can you look upon the face of God the Father and live? No. Actually, the scripture talks about the sevenfold spirit of God. So maybe there's seven manifestations instead of three. So maybe sort of trying to view there's a empty unity. <laughs> there's seven. Or even 21. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God... Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's Messiah who's speaking. He's casting out demons, he says, by the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 8, this will be the Apostle Paul speaking. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Messiah, he is not his. In the same verse, you have the Holy Spirit described as the spirit of God, as the spirit of Messiah, and as the spirit. So is that three separate spirits? No, it's just three different ways they're describing the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 28. Romans 12, what? Oh, oh. 
That was Matthew 12, 28. That's where the 28 came from. The Romans is chapter 8, verse 9, which we just discussed, right? And then to Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So in verse 9, the Spirit's referred to as the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Messiah. And in verse 13, it's the Spirit. In verse 14, it's the Spirit of God. They're using all these interchangeably. And then Romans chapter 15, verse 19. Oh no, the gospel of Messiah has been abolished. Verse 19, and mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Messiah. Okay, it wasn't done away with, but that is also from the verb plurao, same as Matthew 5.17. That's what plurao means, to fully preach, to make sure people fully understand. Now let's look at the occurrences of Spirit of Messiah. One we looked at was Romans 8, 9. We just did. So if you just make a note, Romans 8, 9. Another is in 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 11. We'll start in verse 10 so we don't start in the middle of a sentence. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Messiah who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. What was in the prophets in the Old Testament? The Spirit of Messiah. So the Holy Spirit, described as the Spirit of Messiah, preceded the birth of Messiah in Bethlehem. Yeah, we all figured that. And then I want to look at a couple occurrences of the Spirit of the Lord, and then I'll get off this topic. First, Isaiah chapter 11. Dr. Bob was just talking about that seven spirits of God in Revelation. They're described for us more fully in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1 for context, although the key verse here is verse 2. There shall come forth a rod. The word rod there means a shoot. How many of you have ever gone mowing around a tree and found a little shoot growing out of the roots of the tree? That's what it's talking about. From the stem of Jesse, no, the word stem is actually stump. A tree in prophecy often represents a 
king's throne as it does here, talking about the Davidic throne, that it looked to the world as if the Davidic throne was over once Zedekiah had his son's murder before him, his eyes put out, and then he was taken into Babylon to die in captivity. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's the Netzer. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's one, the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom. That's two. And understanding. That's three. Spirit of counsel. That's four. And might is five. The spirit of knowledge is six. And of the fear of the Lord. To me, those are seven functions that the Holy Spirit performs. To Dr. Bob, it may be seven different spirits making up a candlestick, but I think he was just pulling my leg. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking, you know. I know. They list seven. God is infinite. <laughs> God is infinite. And that's the thing about God. He's everywhere. So when you see somebody steal in a store, they look left and right. They never think to look up. They realize that God's watching it all. Isaiah 61. It's a picture of the sevenfold spirits of God. And those seven lamps feed from one bowl of oil. And oil pictures what? The Holy Spirit. So sevenfold spirit of God. Yeah. Isaiah 61. Verse 1. How many have seen the new menorah in Jerusalem? It's absolutely awesome. For those of you who haven't seen it and want to, be thinking about next October. Shameless plug, huh? <laughs> Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Wait a minute, that's another way to put it. The spirit of the Lord God, except it's not Lord God. That's not the way it should be. It's the spirit of my Lord, the Lord, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. Hmm. How do you anoint someone? You put oil on them. What is oil picture? The Holy Spirit. So by putting the anointing oil, when Samuel the prophet anointed David, he put the spirit of my Lord, the Lord, upon me. Of course, this me is capitalized, talking about Messiah. Wow. Acts chapter 5, because I don't want to get... Too misty-eyed thinking of what the Lord has done for us. It's so awesome. Acts chapter 5, verse 9. Acts chapter 5, verse 9. Are we there? Then Peter said to her, her who? Sapphira. Mm -hmm, Sapphira. What did Ananias and Sapphira do? They lied to the Holy Spirit. Who would think that's a good idea? Anyone who's read Acts chapter 5 wouldn't. Verse 9, then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are here at the door, and they will carry you out. Was that because they didn't give 10% of their gross annual income to the church? No, it was because 
They said, we sold a piece of land and here is 100% of what we sold it for. That was the lie. Second Corinthians. You want to talk about a lie detector? God is a lie detector. Second Corinthians 3. Verses 17 and 18. And now look at this. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Does that mean is like the Spirit? No, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Does that liberty mean we can violate God's commandments with impunity? The answer is no means we have set free from sin. We don't have to live in sin any longer. Let's go back to Galatians. We're still in chapter 3, but we're closing in on it. Verse 16. That can't be right. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Paul was one of the most educated of the Jews of his day. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the grandson of Hallel himself. And sometimes, according to Peter, Paul can be hard to understand because he's just too educated. Who was it at his trial that said, Paul, much learning has driven you mad? Yeah. But the point is what? He says, now, let me stop talking theologically. Let me just talk on your normal person's level. Paul says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Meaning, put aside the Bible, let's just talk like you and me. Though it's only a man's covenant. What's a covenant? It's a contract. Yet if it's confirmed... No one annuls or adds to it. We don't have this in American law anymore, but we did not too many years ago. A covenant under seal could not be broken, not even by the parties to it, not even if they wanted out of the contract. If they both wanted to change the contract, they could not. And that's what Paul is referring to. Remember how they used to have that seal on the ring and they would hit that seal into the wax. And once it's sealed, boy, it cannot be annulled or changed. And I say, if man is that way, if you can't change a man's contract once it's confirmed, how do you break or change one of God's covenants when it's confirmed by the blood of Messiah? The irony of it all, this is the book. They used to try to say God changed his covenant. It's the book that says you can't change God's covenant. No. That God can't change it. What can God not do? There is something God cannot do. God cannot lie. Psalm 89, 34 says, What? My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. It means I will not annul my covenant. I will not add to it. I won't take away from it. I won't change it. Mm -hmm. 
And then Paul says, well, let's talk about that covenant now, because there's a lot of covenants. Name me one covenant in the Old Testament. The Noahide covenant, the rainbow. Anybody ever seen a rainbow? That tells you God's covenant has not been annulled. It's not been changed. It's still the same as it ever was. Give me another one. The Abraham covenant. Another one. The Davidic covenant. There's all kinds of covenants. So Paul says, I got to be a little more specific. Verse 16, not to Abraham and his seed. Notice how seed is capitalized. Were the promises made. What promises? Salvation by faith. The Messiah also, but here the emphasis is on salvation by faith. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. It does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Messiah. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. For those denominations that will only teach the books written by Paul, they must have a hard time trying to explain some of these verses. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. No, 13, 15, sorry. 13, 15, there's a one in front of there. Yeah, 13, 15. 3, 15 is the Proto-Evangelium. That's why it pops to mind for me. But it's Genesis 13, 15. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant, right? The promise of the land. Go to Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. On the same day, what's that? Genesis 15, verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim. Ooh, they were giants, weren't they? The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. But turn back a page. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham, called here Avram, takes exception to that. He says, But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Avram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. He said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him for righteousness. Salvation by faith, right here. God said it. Abraham believed it. Go to Genesis 17, verses 7 to 8. 
And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in the generations. What's that mean? And with all the descendants in the future. Is that only physical descendants? No, we're going to find out in Galatians chapter 3. It includes the spiritual descendants. Those that have been grafted in by faith. For an everlasting covenant. What's everlasting mean? It means for a little while, right? No, it means forever and ever. To be God to you and your descendants after you. And also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you're a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Which is more important to you, the promise of the land, or that he will be our God, and we will live in his presence eternally? Verse 9, God said to Avram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout the generations, and then we go on to the next one. Genesis chapter 18, verse 15. Genesis chapter 18, verse 15 through 19. God promised Abraham a child through Sarah. How old's Abraham? He's an old man. And Sarah... She's old too. So starting in verse 15. Oh, let's see. Let's see. Yep, verse 15. But Sarah denied having laughed. And saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, but you did laugh. You can't hide it from God. Then the men rose from there. Who's one of the three men? Is the Lord. How can the Lord be appearing in bodily form. The Lord's the Spirit. What's that? He's also Yeshua. This is Yeshua. He's been from the beginning with two of the angels. And the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what was spoken to him. Then to Genesis chapter 22. Verses 15 to 18. Yes, this is where Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount. And verse 15 says, Then the angel Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sandwich on the seashore. Is that starting to sound like the covenant? Yes, it is. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed. This is what Paul's referring back to. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
That seed is Messiah. It's part of the covenant. Salvation by faith is part of the covenant. And how was that covenant sealed? It was sealed in blood. Hmm, let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 17. And this I say, that the law, talking about the Torah given at Mount Sinai, when it was spoken to all the people assembled there, written down on stone tablets and on scrolls. And this I say, that the Torah, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Messiah, that it should make the promise of no effect. God says, once I have a covenant with Abraham that applies to his descendants, physical and spiritual, throughout the generations forever, that salvation is by faith, you think I'm going to come along 430 years later and say I changed my mind? God doesn't do that. God doesn't break his covenants. God doesn't add to his covenants. He doesn't change his covenants. Aren't you glad? But that's what so much doctrine is built upon that God changes. The whole dispensational time. It's what people believe that that's what God has done, that He was like this for this group. Changed His mind. That's the whole idea behind dispensationalism is God keeps finding out that what he's trying to do doesn't work. He's got to come up with another plan. And then in the kingdom, we're going to go back to salvation by works. And then in the kingdom, we go back to salvation by works because of Revelation 14, 12. Then I would explain that any other way. Yeah. That's how I fell in love with Jesus. That's how you fell in love with Jesus. He never changes. He never changes. That's right. He doesn't change. He's always the same today and tomorrow. There are people who look at Psalm 89.34 and they say, yes, God said my covenant I will not break, draw to the words that has gone out of my mouth, but he's only talking about the promise to David. He lies to everybody else. He just didn't lie to David. To which I look at them like they have three eyes. Okay. Back to Galatians. Yes, sir. The covenant at Sinai Seems to be the only covenant that people have issue with. They never look back and say, well, God did away with the Noahide covenant, do they? Right. Right. I don't know. They have trouble with the Abrahamic covenant. They want to give away God's promised land, don't they? You know what I mean. I know what you mean. But the one theologians argue with is just the covenant Mount Sinai. Why? Because they don't want to do it. I even heard a messianic leader this week talking about Yom Kippur and the fast and saying, well, since Jesus died, we don't have to do that fast anymore. We've been set free. I'm thinking, never mind. People don't think about that. The new covenant is just the renewed covenant. The Torah written upon the hearts and minds. It's the renewed, uh, the renewal of the covenant that was made at Sinai. You're absolutely correct. Like, are you going to be my bride? 
Are you going to be my bride? That's exactly what it is. God opened it up and said, who would like to be my bride? Come sign up here. Yep, I agree. So verse 17 is very clear to me, apparently not to a lot of theologians, that the law was not a way of salvation. It did not set aside salvation by faith and show a new dispensation of a new way to be saved. Unfortunately, scribes and Pharisees came later to look at it that way. They misinterpreted it, and that's why Messiah had to come to, what? To fill it full. To make sure that we understand. Let's see, I got a red number out here. Let's see. Was told by a loved one that he's doing things differently now. The reasons the covenants don't apply to all believers. So the rainbows are only for Jews or, or for who? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Do the commandments apply to Jews and Gentiles? Let's just get that out of the way. Everybody say 1 Corinthians chapter 7, not 6. Yep. Verse 19. Let's, let's turn to look. But Paul said, yeah, this is what Paul said. It's his writing. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. I mean, it doesn't matter if you were born a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter to God. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Are the commandments for all people? That's what it says. Maybe God lied. No, God doesn't lie. Think about how that ties right back to 1 John 5. This is the love of God. Let's turn and look at it. First John 5. So, I mean, like, you would ask, you know, a person who claims to be a Christian. You would ask a person who claims to be a Christian. Do you love God? Do you love God? They would say, oh, I love God with my whole heart. Well, then you flip here and say, okay. Flip here and say, what does this say? It says in verses 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Black and white. What if theologian is going to say, well, that disagrees with the doctrine of so-and-so, so just ignore those verses. Anyone who says just ignore those verses, I would just ignore that teacher. Back to Galatians. Well, I was taught on that. that um, you were taught on that, that? We only have to follow Jesus' commandments. We have to follow Jesus' commandments. <laughs> Because let's go to John 14, 15. That's what he says, right? John 14, 15. I mean, let's take verses. I mean, let's go look at the context. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, come and keep my commandments. Well, this is Jesus speaking, right? But if you look at verses 23 and 24 of the same chapter, Messiah himself still speaking. She answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. Did Messiah come to do away with God's commandments, as we've heard so often? 
The answer to that is John chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. But Wayne, there's Galatians 6, which says... We fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the Torah. <laughs> well, obviously there's a different law, apparently. That's what theologians say. There's many different laws. You can't just look and say the law refers to the law at Mount Sinai. That's a narrow view. It's also a right view, but however. Let's get back to Galatians. Verse 17. I just can't seem to get off that verse. This I say, that the Torah, the law, that Messiah is going to teach in the kingdom, in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Messiah, that it should make the promise of no effect. We mentioned it two or three times, but let's turn to it. Psalm 89, 34. If tattoos weren't forbidden, I think I'd tattoo this on my forehead, but they're forbidden, so I won't do that. Instead, I had Becky make me a t-shirt. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. I cannot look at that verse and not see Matthew 4.4. I'm going to write it here in the margin, Matthew 4.4. For Messiah in red says what? Man shall live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So which words that God spoke in the Old Testament are no longer appropriate? They're all appropriate. None have been done away with. That's what scripture is. Theonuptos, God breathes. You're absolutely right. Say that one more time because I was checking a message. Uh, yeah, I know. Okay. I said, you know, we're in a conundrum. We're in a conundrum. When we say that this scripture is abolished. We say that this scripture is abolished. Because if you say scripture is abolished. Because if you say scripture is abolished. You're calling God a liar. Because it, it came out of his mouth. That is such a dangerous thing. How do you want to stand up? before the Lord on Judgment Day and say, you're a liar. I didn't have to do that. I don't think so. I don't think anybody's going to be doing it. But does God change? Does he lie? Let's go to Malachi 3. Malachi 3. Malachi, our Italian prophet. Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. And I realize I don't always cover every verse that we could talk about on the topic. Otherwise, I'd start out each service by saying, open to Genesis 1-1, and we'll read through Revelation 22. 
Because God does not change. He keeps saying the same thing over and over again. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8. Yeshua the Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why does God keep telling us the same thing over and over again? Why do you keep telling your children the same thing over and over again? Why does Paul keep calling us ignorant? Why does Paul keep calling us ignorant? Yeah. Okay, back to Galatians chapter 3. We're up to verse 18. 4. What does 4 mean? Because. If the inheritance, talking about eternal life, if eternal life is of the law, that is, if it's obtained through keeping commandments of the law, it's no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. There has never been salvation by works. Never, ever. The Scribes and Pharisees try to make it look that way. But that doesn't change the nature of God's word. Any more than a pastor can get up in the pulpit and say, you don't need to keep God's commandments. In fact, you, you can't. You're forbidden to. Because if you keep Shabbat, you're trying to earn your salvation. How many of you are here tonight trying to earn your salvation? Not to me. Trying to prove that my salvation is real. Where in the scripture might you get the idea that God judges our faith by whether we're obedient or not? Deuteronomy 8, 11. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. That was Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 23. And Matthew chapter 5 is verses 17 and 19. Back to 1 John chapter 5, this is the love of God. What really, really gets to me is I used to think that they were teaching right. And I can't understand how I used to think that. I think what changed is I read the Bible. A little closer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That does make a difference. Back to the scriptures, Galatians chapter 3. Well, I think just like Abraham, we have to... Uh, just like Abraham, we have we to... We believe the promise of salvation. We have to believe the promise of salvation. What does the word believe mean? Trust and faith. Have faith. Trust and faith. It is the Hebrew verb, amin, from which we get amen. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. If he said it, he will do it. In fact, doesn't the Bible say something like that? Yeah. Let's go on to verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Well, if we can't be saved by keeping the commandments, why do it? It says it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, that's Messiah, to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. You read through that and go, what does that mean? Let's go back to Romans chapter 7 where Paul explains it a little more fully. Maybe. That's where Mary got into it. <laughs> Maybe. 
Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? His answer, Majinoito, certainly not. In King James, God forbid. Let me see, I got some red comments out here. Let's see. Yeah, true. Oh, again, Warren say, look at Numbers 23, 19. So keep a finger in Romans. Let's go to Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do, or has he spoken and will he not make it good? What does that verse mean? God says what he means, he means what he says, and he will not change it. Though sometimes in the scripture, the translators didn't get it quite right. But that doesn't mean God changed. Okay, back to Romans. Because a lot of times they change, they, and they translate the word relent as repent, and that's something entirely different. Remember, in the Hebrew of the Bible, You can translate a sentence, I will do, or I may do, and both are equally correct. So sometimes when the English Bible says, I will do this, they should have translated it, I might do this. Have you ever told your children? It's kind of like with a condition, I'll do this if you don't. I'll do this if you don't. That's generally the way it's given. If you don't repent... Kind of the whole thing with Jonah and Nineveh. If they hadn't repented, God would have If they hadn't repented, God would have destroyed them right then. Their repentance slipped away, and then God destroyed them. He didn't change his mind. They right. simply delayed the implementation by their repentance. Very good. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. We got that far. On the contrary. What's that mean on the contrary? It means it actually never was sin. Never will be. On the contrary. I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said you shall not covet. It means I would not have known that coveting was wrong if the law didn't say you shall not covet. What does the scripture say that sin is not imputed where there is no law? Verse 8 goes on to say, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Meaning what? I didn't want to do it until I, found out I, it until I found out I wasn't allowed to do it. And then I wanted to do it. Is that not the heart of man? It really is. But verse 12 is the bottom line of this line of thought. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. 
It had a purpose, and the purpose is to show us how to walk in holiness. And then our sinful nature said, yeah, but I'm not going to do it. Who is God to tell me what to do? Well, the answer to that is the one who holds our eternal destiny in his hands. Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20. Yes, sir. He says in singular in that commandment, holy and just and good. Isn't it also singular in Deuteronomy? It's also singular in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It refers to the whole thing as the commandment. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. That's in Deuteronomy 6. I think it's verse 1. Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's how we know what sin is. If the law had been abolished with Messiah's resurrection, then you and I never sinned. And we don't need a Savior. And I'm going to tell you what. We're sinners, and we need a Savior. And we all know it, don't we? We all know it. Back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 20. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. What? He means that a mediator mediates between two parties. God is one. Who's the other party? Yeah, that's you and me. So Messiah is mediating between a holy and righteous God and you and I who may have committed a sin here and there. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> Verse 21. Is the law. Wait a minute. Let me take to do to do. Let me grab that. Just make sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is a verse that describes Messiah's role as a mediator, and that is 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. Some of you were about to say, Wayne, you missed 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one mediator between God and men, the man Yeshua the Messiah. Okay, back to Galatians 3, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Fair question. Do you have two different competing systems of salvation? One by faith, one by law. There are many theologians who say yes. Don't you go sharing the gospel with the Jews. They're saved a different way. They're saved by works. What does the scripture say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There are not two ways. There is only one. Wouldn't this verse 21 works be just like Doc here saying, okay, if if you want to lose your leg, say, go right ahead and leave it untreated, but I can help. And this is how we do it. That's how, you know, the two are working together. Okay. True enough. So, verse 21, 
Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. Which means they work together, like Becky said. They're in a harmony. What does faith bring? Obedience. Faith brings obedience. Without the law, how do you know what to do or not to do? How do we know the law even existed before Mount Sinai? That, so Abraham was commended by God for keeping, and it specifically says for the Torah. And when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he destroy him for? <laughs> sin. What is sin? Transgression of the law. And God told Cain, when you do evil, sin lies at the door. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. So the law has been from the beginning. Cain and Abel's in Genesis chapter 4. The Lord said, don't eat from that tree. That's in Genesis 3. <laughs> now we're getting really close to the beginning, aren't we? And the Moedim are in chapter 1. Oh, we just went all the way back. The fact that in Genesis 1.14, the Moedim, which is part of the law, are there, indicates that the law has been from the very beginning. Has there ever been anything in any time in Scripture you've read where God said, Thou shalt not ever do this, and then later said, yeah, why don't you go ahead and do it? There isn't. And who learned that lesson in 1 Kings chapter 13? That guy called lion food. Okay, back to verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. The law's purpose was not to bring eternal life. That was the promise of God of salvation by faith. Isn't that essentially what the young ruler was asking? Yeah, give me one commandment I can do that will guarantee me entry into heaven. What must I do? And he said, keep the commandments, but you have to mingle it with faith. We learn that from Hebrews chapter 3, don't we? Those that died in the wilderness didn't get to enter the promised land because they didn't mix the hearing of the law with faith. It says it very clearly. Wow. We have a few more minutes. Verse 22. But the scripture has confined who under sin? All. Oh no. The wage of the sin is death. How many commandments do you have to break to earn the death sentence? One. Just one. So the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Yeshua the Messiah might be given to those who believe. In other words, the wages of sin is death is universal, but for those who have been saved by faith, Messiah took that death penalty, that curse of the law upon himself for you. You just noticed something you've never seen before. The word in verse 22 in scripture is what? It's used synonymously with the Torah. 
The word before, in the verse before, is the law. This word is scripture, and they're synonymous. Because what is scripture, like you said before, is that which came through the lips of God. And, and there again, the irony of this section is what people, people try to say. The irony is this section is where people say this abolished the law. And so this is, if this is scripture, it came out of God's mouth. If this is scripture, it came out of God's mouth. The Torah came out of God's mouth. Will God ever break the word that came out of his mouth? He says no. If you say yes, you're calling him a liar. Don't stand too close to me come judgment day. But there's something else that Daniel points out on occasion that jumps out at me in this verse 22. It says, but the scripture is confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Yeshua the Messiah might be given to those who believe. That word believe is a participle who continue to believe, not just believed once upon a time. What does participle mean? It means continuous action. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Also the word given, not earned, right? Yep, you're very right. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 13. Matthew chapter 8, verse 13. Then Yeshua said to the centurion, Go your way, as you have believed, so it will be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. What if the centurion did not believe? that Messiah could heal his servant. People say, well, his servant would have been healed anyway. That's not what the scripture says, is it? The centurion wouldn't have asked him to. That's right. The centurion would never have asked it. And it would never have happened. But he said, as you have believed. Let's go to Matthew 21, verse 32. It's interesting in the scriptures or when the scriptures in the scriptures in the gospels where it talks about people being made whole it's the same word as saved it's the same word as saved remember messiah said which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk so like in those places where you see people being made whole so this place where you see people made whole You could very well translate that word as being saved, and you know that because you're working on that lesson, aren't you? It's interesting because when you see the Lord heal somebody, what does he tell them? Go and sin again, right? No. He says, go and sin no more. You see how they're connected. They have been washed clean. Their sins have been forgiven. Now go and sin no more. There's that connection to belief. There's that connection to belief. There's the connection to salvation. I've looked and looked and nowhere does the Lord say now go hurry up and go sin some more. Never, never, never. Did we do Matthew 21, 32? 
We just got there. Matthew 21, verse 32 says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness. How did John come? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's being described here as the way of righteousness. Repentance leads to righteousness. And you did not believe him. Imagine that. What was it that John said to the scribes and Pharisees? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee for the mat to come? It says, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. So what did they do when they believed John's message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? They repented. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Meaning when you saw others repent and turn their lives around and walk in newness of life, you still said, not me. I'm not doing it. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Verse 15. How many of these believes are participles? There are a lot. Here's one. Start in verse 14 for context, but the key is 15. After John was put in prison, Yeshua came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. And that word believe is a command form. What does that mean? Do it. <laughs> it means do it. What does Deuteronomy 18 say about those who would not listen to the words of Messiah? That God would hold them accountable for it, right? Repent and believe. Too many theologians today say, no, you can't repent. That shows a lack of faith. Then why, are they being commanded to do so? then why would they be commanded here to do so by the Lord himself? Both repent, and believe are both repent and believe are both commands. That doesn't surprise anybody, does it? The Bible all through the New Testament says, if you will not repent... Don't think you're on the road to heaven. Let's add to it Deuteronomy 27 as our time is getting very close to ending. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this Torah. And all the people shall say, Amen. If you will not accept God's commandments, you don't have to. But it says you take upon yourself the curse. And what is the curse? The wages of sin is death. 
With that, let's bring the Bible study to a close for tonight. We'll pick up in two weeks, Lord willing, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23.